After you've marked him number eight, perhaps it would be in order to add my will wishes to all the fathers that are audience today. This third Sunday in June, that day set aside each year to celebrate fatherhood and all the good blessings that come from it. Certainly we hope that each of the fathers have a very joyous and happy day in celebration of your role as the father leader of, of your family. In fact, as we consider that there are many today who no doubt at least are able to call, talk to their fathers, or at least visit, share, with, share a part of the day with them, what a joyous occasion, a great blessing indeed our fathers are to each of us. Perhaps it would be well at this point to notice a mistake that has already, uh, at least I was able to catch that, perhaps you already have too. In the bulletin, as I gave the information to Sister Gail to be pre presented and printed for the sermons today, both this morning and tonight, you may already have noted the lesson text for tonight. I, it, that was entirely my mistake. It reads 2 Samuel 4.39, when in fact the chapter 4 does not even have 39 verses. That is supposed to be chapter 3, verse 39. So I just, if you wish to read that prior to tonight's lesson, I'd invite you to just jump back a chapter, and the last verse of chapter 3 will be the lesson text for tonight's lesson. As you may have noted already, not only in the bulletin, but also on the wall to my left, the composition of man will be the thought that we shall present before each of us this morning to at least consider briefly what it is that the scriptures teach about the makeup of the human being. By way of introduction, it would certainly be fair to note that last Lord's Day morning we looked and attempted to answer the question about the heart of man that in fact is not a trustworthy and reliable guide in matters of religion. The very thought, though, of the heart of man might lead us to ask, well, what is man? What is a human being? Can you and I pinpoint that with a definition that would at least be somewhat believable? No doubt that question has been pondered by virtually all thinking individuals from the dawn of time. In fact, there are those, depending on no doubt their belief system, that have presented many rather distinct answers to that question. The evolutionist, for example, would very quickly say that the human being is really a composition of atoms that by virtue of, say, mutations and genetic variation has been made able to invent, to think, to do other things that are recognized as high-order operations. But notice it came about by these naturalistic processes from the perspective of the evolutionist. The constructivist, no doubt, would say, well, really we could do something different than that and say that the human being relates directly to cultural activity. Unlike any other creature on earth, humans seem to interrelate culturally far more than any others. That just scratches the surface. Depending on one's belief system, you could find many other purported answers to that. May I submit to you, though, that almost all of them somehow relate to psychological capability or awareness. Did you notice, though, in all of these answers that men have presented them? Doesn't that, though, beg the question, is man himself in a position to answer that question in a trustworthy and reliable way? Consider this analogy. Suppose that you or I were intensely interested in understanding the process whereby tires are made. With all due respect to the president of Tennessee Tech, and with all due respect to the mayor of Cookville, it would seem to me unreasonable to think that either of those individuals would have the information and provide the answer about the construction, the chemical process, 
the means by which tires are constructed. But it would be fair to say that the chief science engineer for the Michelin Corporation likely would be a wonderful source to ask that question of. Is it not the same today? Has man ever created man? Has a human being ever created another one? In any sense, have humans even come close to fashioning a being of even a tiny capability of what a human being can do? In light of the fact the answer is no, then what right do we think man could ever answer this question? But as we open the pages of the sacred word of God, we know that God has fashioned man. We know he made him, he created him, he formed him. And in that sense, God ought to have the blueprint and he ought to be able to answer what is man. It is in that sense that we shall thus turn to the sacred scriptures this morning and let the Bible address for us what is man. We shall begin in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the very text read for us by Brother John a few moments ago. If you would, proceed to take a look at that text with me. And we learn, in fact, the first very basic consideration. That text simply reads, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a brilliant stroke of divine genius that here the inspired apostle set forth the fact that the human constitution includes three things. There is a body, there is a soul, and there is a spirit. It is in fact almost at the outset to be noted that you and I, it seems, typically consider man to have a two-part constitution. We consider it to be the material and the non-material, the temporal and the non-temporal. But notice, Paul went one step further than that. There's a body, there's a spirit, there's a soul. And these, we might note the latter two, are distinct. It's true enough that sometimes the human family chooses to use the word soul and the word spirit interchangeably, as though they represent and identify exactly the same element. But might we never forget the scriptures distinguish, differentiate these. In fact, let's notice Hebrews 4 verse 12. In that majestic reference to the Word of God and what it's capable of accomplishing, the inspired writer said, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the, the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. May we notice in passing that the inspired writer said, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. That word that appears in the Greek text there, that word piercing, comes from a word that is, I've listed for our consideration on the wall. If you'd permit me an attempted pronunciation of such, it is diakneomai, and it simply means to penetrate, to go through, or to pierce. On the other hand, the very next word in the Greek text in that verse, the one translated dividing asunder, is the word marismos, and it means a division or a partition. Well, you and I know that when we partition something, we divide it into sections or groups, and the groups are not identical, and they're not necessarily interchangeable. In fact, so it is here, the Holy Scriptures seem to dictate directly that there is that the piercing, dividing asunder of soul and spirit. These are different. They are not identically the same. We thus immediately the, then learn 
the human frame consists of these three parts, the body, the soul, and the spirit. Let's devote the remainder of the time that we have this morning to a more thorough consideration of each of the three and see if we can allow the Bible to determine for us a better appreciation of what distinguishes them, especially the latter two. With that said, let's look at the easiest one first, the body. In so doing, the Scriptures lead us on an interesting journey throughout all of the Word of God as it reveals to us the nature of this physical frame that in fact is so easily recognized as a part of you and me. The word body in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 is the Greek word soma, S-O-M-A, and it literally means simply a body. As Paul made reference to that body, it might be immediately questioned, is this a special type of body in the sense that it's made of things not found anywhere else? Is it composed of those things that one perhaps must search very intricately and diligently to locate? The immediate answer from God's Word is no. It is composed of those same chemical elements that make dust and dirt. In fact, it, did it not state early in the, in the Bible that very fact? In Genesis 2 verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. What then did God fashion Adam's body out of? It was made of the dust of the ground. Thus, those common elements that comprise the dust are those same ones that are the principal constituents of the human frame itself. One chapter later in Genesis 3.19, this text descriptive of that scene after Adam and Eve had partaken of the forbidden fruit, in that punishment that God placed upon Adam, God rather directly said, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return into the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Thus we immediately conclude that that body, far from being constituted of some special substances that are very difficult to find, is made of those same chemical elements and compositions that make up the dust and the dirt of the ground. There is, however, more that can be said about that body. Might we again note the verb used in Genesis 2-7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. The word form used in that place is a Hebrew verb that is utilized in the same way as if a potter fashions a piece of clay. The potter has complete power to dictate the form that the clay will take. So it was that God designed, dictated the form that the human frame and body would have. It is thus not the product of a long span of accidental changes. The fact that you and I have two eyes and not four or five or eight is not the matter that it was simply an evolutionary choice over a lengthy period of time. God fashioned it in the way that it was His design to see it best, and it has ever remained in such a fashion throughout the ages of time. In fact, isn't it interesting? In Psalm 139, verse 14, the psalmist there declared, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. The blessed and beautiful performance of the human body, all the organs as they work in synchronous harmony to make a functioning human frame. In Proverbs 20, verse 12, a rhetorical question is asked by God, did not God make the hearing ear and the seeing eye? 
The fact that the eye can see and that the ear can hear, again, that did not occur by random happenstance. It occurred because the God of heaven so designed it that way. It was His plan for it to be so. And thus your body and mine, the human body, if you will, is a blessed testimony of the ever-reaching providence and power of God. He fashioned it, and He made it to have the form it does. Perhaps one final observation about the human body. It is not eternal. It is corruptible in its very nature. A host of passages, in fact, relate to that idea. I've listed just a few for your consideration. We noted one in Genesis 3.19. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Will the human frame thus survive perpetually? Will it live forever? Is it in a position to ever be incorruptible? The Bible does not so describe it. It shall return into the dust, facing the deterioration and decay before it. That is the lot, the ending point of that body that's mine and yours. Might it be noted in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, in a beautiful poetic way, Paul made this statement. For if the earthly house of our tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Paul contradistincted the body that he now had and that of the Corinthians, the fact that it should be dissolved with the one they would one day inhabit, never to be dissolved. You and I can thus appreciate that it is the recognition of God that this body as you and I now see it is not going to live forever. It is not eternal in this present state. As often as the Bible sets that forth, it does beg the question, what then of these other two constituents, what role do they play, the soul and spirit, as they harmonize with the body? With those points set forth, might we look then at the second of our considerations. As Paul made description in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he also made mention of the spirit of man. Let's thus try to identify very carefully, based on the Scriptures, what is the spirit of man. First of all, the Greek word that is their translated spirit is the word pneuma. The P is silent. P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma. With that description of what that word appears, what does it mean? It means in the Greek text, the vital principle which animates the body. You and I can well see that when God fashioned Adam's body, gave him two eyes, two ears, two legs, two arms, and the various other things descriptive of the human frame, what if he had never animated that body in any way? He would have just lied as though it were dead. Well, that would not have been a human being either. There is something beyond the physical. And would it not at all be noted that this is the proper time to appreciate that those in our world who think that the human being is nothing more than the physical are sorely mistaken. There are many who believe in the materialistic point of view, that if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. All that man is is a body, and when he's dead, it's over, and there's nothing more to be said. It must be pitiful and all too pathetic to be of that mindset. Nothing to hold you beyond the grave, nothing to carry you to the realms beyond. And sadly enough, they are all mistaken. For here we notice Paul said there is a spirit to man. That spirit is the vital principle that gives that body life. Now let's note more interestingly what else can be said. 
that spirit is not generated by human means. It is not a product of anything that man is able to do. That then asks the question, where does it come from? Who gives it and what is its origin? In Zechariah 12 verse 1, we have the definition and answer to that question. The text reads, The Lord God giveth the spirit of man within him. He formeth the spirit of man within him. That idea is reiterated in Isaiah 42. In either of those texts, we see that where does the Spirit come from? God gives it. At that moment, when a man and a woman proceed that course of events to bring a child into the world, at the time of conception, God gives a Spirit to that being. And that Spirit, as we'll see in a moment, will never die. The realization and recognition of that leads us to note also this. It is an essence of God Himself. Do we not read? God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. That certainly is not to say that you and I are God, for we are not. But in the sense that He is a spirit, He has given to us by the character of His will an element of a spirit as well. We are spirits. That spirit animates the body, and that spirit gives us a character and meaning similar to, in part, what God Himself enjoys. We might consider it this way. In Genesis 1, verse 26, we read that, Let us make man in our image. God made man in His image. What does it mean to say that you or I are made in God's image? Certainly we don't physically look like God, for God is not physical. After all, Luke 24, 39 reminds us, A spirit hath not flesh and bones. God doesn't have a body like we do. We know, though, that we are spirits like He is. That spirit gives us a testimony and a meaning that where you and I can accomplish things not unlike Him. Does God love? Yes, He does. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Can you and I love? Yes. We love our wife, our husband, our children. Thus, in the sense that God is able to act in ways that are so noble and high, so too you and I can do the same. Is it not fair also to notice the angels themselves are ministering spirits? Time and again we're reminded in the Scriptures that those angels are themselves non-corporeal beings in the sense that they don't have physical bodies either unless they on occasion were such that God gave them the, those, be, those bodies. We might be reminded then to say that you and I are immortal spirits is to note that for a while that spirit indwells the body. It's not the same as the body, but it indwells it. It lives within it. There is a spirit within me that is really Randy Bybee. And there's a spirit within you that is really that. Your body is not ultimately and finally who you are. It is that spirit that identifies who you are. To make observation then of that spirit is perhaps to make one final point. That spirit is immortal. It will live forever. We noted earlier the body is not so. It is temporary. There shall come a time it will return to the dust of which it's made. But the Spirit never once in all the Bible is the Spirit ever said to die. 
Never once in all the Word of God is the Spirit ever said to cease to exist. Once it is imparted in that item that's created at conception, it never ceases to be. The Spirit is eternal. Perhaps that alone is the closest that you and I can appreciate that just as God is eternal, you and I are the same from the point of conception forward. Notice some verses that speak to the immortality of that Spirit. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, even in the days of the Old Testament, the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Even at death, did Solomon say the Spirit dies? Does the Spirit thus become such that it too is buried? No. Solomon said it returns unto God who gave it. In Luke 23, verse 46, even as our Savior was in the moments of the cross, what is it he affirmed? He knew his spirit would live onward past the physical death associated with that crucifixion. And might we never forget the wonderful statement of Stephen in Acts 7, 59. Even after preaching that marvelous sermon of Old Testament history, and his hearers were thus sufficiently angry at what he said, that they picked up rocks to stone him to death, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen well knew his spirit was not going to be put to death that day. He well knew his spirit would live on, and he, in fact, he beseeched the marvelous Creator, receive my spirit. Thus, we've noted that though the body may be mortal, the spirit is not. Living onward continually, and that paints a glorious picture of, does it not, a day of judgment. When in fact a time will come that you and I in spirit form will stand before the judgment bar of God and give an answer for the deeds done in the body. That perhaps leads us to then question, if we've identified the body and made description of the spirit, what then is the soul? What exactly did Paul mean when he made reference to the soul of man? I have reserved the most difficult of the three until the end. What do we make of the usage of Paul's word soul? Might I ask you to consider this one? The soul, as it is, appears in this text, is from a different Greek word than is the spirit. It is the word suche, P-S-U-C-H-E, and you'll notice that it is a rather broad, multifaceted term, and I've stated it this way. Its meaning must ultimately be determined from the context in which it is found. Now, let's illustrate that more carefully in the following way. The original Greek word seems to have had its origin in relation to breathing. That which is capable of breath, that which is able to undergo the process of breathing or respiration. But as it is used in the Bible, the term is somewhat broad. Perhaps examples would do the best of all in terms of illustrating that. In Acts 2.41, we learn that about 3,000 souls responded to the gospel call of invitation that day and became members of the body. So 3,000 souls. Notice also in 1 Peter 3, verse number 20, eight souls were saved by water. In those contexts, the word soul is synonymous with person. It means about 3,000 persons obeyed the Lord that day. Eight persons were aboard that ark in Noah's day. In some instances then in the scriptures, the word soul basically means the word the same thing as the idea of person. But that isn't the only thing that word can mean. Notice in Genesis 2, 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and man became a living soul. We might be tempted to think there that that word soul is representative of that immortal spirit that we've just discussed earlier. But fundamentally, the scriptures will not uphold that viewpoint. Because if you'll turn back one chapter earlier, in Genesis 1.21, the animals are said to have a soul too. Now, please notice, not for a moment does the Bible teach, and certainly I'm not claiming it either, that a, an animal such as a dog or a cat has an immortal spirit the way you and I do. But it is significant that the word soul, as it's descriptive of man in Genesis 2-7, is used the same way in terms of whales and birds in Genesis 1-21. Now, they have a soul in the sense that they're breathing, they're alive, their body illustrates the fact that it is not a lifeless thing. It is in that sense that the word soul is being employed with regard to animals, and the same is, of course, being said of us. In fact, have you and I ever been in a position, perhaps a little child or maybe our spouse is sleeping so soundly that they appear absolutely motionless, and maybe we have to get close to them to make sure that they're breathing. We know that if they're breathing, that, that all seems to be well. That idea of breathing, a respiration, seems a critical initial idea then as it related to the notion of the soul. But notice a third usage. Sometimes the word soul seems to relate to the intelligence of man, his heart, as we learned last Lord's Day morning. Consider these passages. In Mark 12, verse 30, Jesus, as he enunciated the greatest of the commandments, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. The word soul, as it appears there, seems not to relate to that immortal spirit of which we previously discussed, but it seems to relate to his seat of affection, the ultimate character of his determination, devotion, and desire in life. Or look at another text in Luke 2.35. After the Lord's birth, we remember that Mary, it was told to her, thy soul shall be pierced through with a sword. Now we know the soul is not a physical thing such that a sword could pierce it. But yet, the scriptures include that statement. Did that not mean that her mind would be greatly troubled by many things that she would see in life? She would see her son hanged on a cross. She would see him bru bruised and beaten and scourged. In fact, she would be heartbroken as she would see him rejected by the human family, no doubt. So soul seems to be a general term that has several different types of usages, and only the context can ultimately determine it. There is one final one. There are occasions and verses where the word soul seems to refer to that immortal spirit. Now in those verses, the word spirit will not occur. It is just mentioned, for instance, as body versus soul, where that has behind it the idea of the immortal part of man. Isn't that the way the Lord used it? In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, I list that for your consideration in verse 28. Jesus said, Fear not him that can kill the body and hath no more than he can do, but rather fear him that can kill both body and soul in hell. Notice the Lord never mentioned the word spirit. The context on that occasion didn't require him to do so. He merely mentioned there's this physical thing called the body. 
There's this non-physical called the soul, as he used it broadly in that sense. And there, that word soul does have reference then to that immortal part of man. You and I thus can see that one other possibility in Acts 2.27 reminds us that on that marvelous occasion of the first gospel sermon, Peter stated, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Now notice again, Peter never made reference to the spirit per se, but he did make reference by Old Testament quotation to the soul. You and I can conclude that discussion then somewhat briefly in this way. Ultimately, there are three parts to the human constitution. As we come to trying to distinguish more clearly the spirit and the soul, we notice ultimately and finally there is but one definition for the spirit. When it occurs and is mentioned, it is that immortal part that animates the body and never dies. In fact, James highlighted that in these words in James 2.26. The body without the spirit is dead. Even so, faith without works is dead. When the time comes that you and I die, notice that the body is left behind lifeless. The spirit has now gone to reside and abide elsewhere. Now, that's perhaps a far greater discussion for a different time, but that's the realm of Hades. That's where the spirit awaits the return of the Lord the second time, bringing to a close the affairs of time. But might we notice that corpse or that body that's left behind, the spirit is gone. But notice, in the sense that it's not breathing, that helps us appreciate verses like Psalm 78, verse 50. On that occasion, it is stated the soul died. Now again, that is not the immortal part of man. That's not the spirit as we've discussed it. That usage of the soul has relation to the fact that it's not breathing anymore. Its lifelessness is gone. In that sense, in that text, the it is not being taught that the soul, as it's the immortal spirit, ever dies. That's using the word soul differently. Perhaps as we've looked at all of them, a conclusion or a summary might be in order. As all of these are presented, we've seen that man fundamentally consists of three elements. One is the body, that physical thing that the eye can behold. It was, it was formed by the very design of God and bears His handiwork, and it is not eternal. We've also seen the Spirit, the immortal part of you and me, and we appreciate that Spirit has an awareness about it. Even after the, the time of death has come and the Spirit has gone elsewhere, we learn in Luke 16, it's capable of enjoying comfort. It's also capable of experiencing torment. No wonder in this life, we have a time of preparation to be certain that we so conduct ourselves so that the blessing of God on that day of judgment will be ours and not His wrath, not the torment in an eternal hell. For we can rest assured that that spirit and all the awareness that it has will appreciate not only the bounty of heaven if it's so blessed, it'll also know the excruciating agony and the excruciating pain and the excruciating anguish associated with day, with hell itself. Finally, we've seen that the word soul is a much broader term. It can mean person. It can mean intelligence. It can mean the simple fact of being able to breathe and to live. Or it can have reference to the immortal spirit. May you and I so live that we can say the same thing Stephen did. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
when the time comes that we lay this old body down with the toils and labors of life behind us, that we too can have the same confident expectation that Stephen had to look forward to heaven itself, where it will not only be God but the Son, the Holy Spirit, and all the redeemed of all the ages of time. It's my hope that as we've looked at 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we've been perhaps encouraged to better understand the distinction between these three terms and to understand that you and I are far different than any animal. And I thought I'd use that to close the lesson. We begin by noting the evolutionist definition of the person, and quite often it places us on an equal footing, but perhaps only slightly better than an animal. The human being is not an animal, never has been, never will be. You and I were made in the image and likeness of God. We are immortal spirits and animals are not. We are those who then can look forward to living faithfully in light of the commandments of God and enjoying His blessing forevermore. Are you then a Christian this morning? Are you such that your spirit has been washed in the blood of the Lamb so that it is pure and clean and guiltless before God? 2 Corinthians 5.21 reminds us that God Himself sent Him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Does God consider you righteous because of Christ's blood having cleansed you? If so, you know what a great blessing that is and how it changed your life. If you've never become a Christian, however, never had your sins washed in the blessed blood of the Lamb, let today be the day, this 15th of June, 2008. Let Jesus wash your sins away. The baptismal garments, the water, all is prepared. What you may need to do is believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess verbally and audibly His name before others so that they appreciate the understood nature that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God. And then simply allow yourself to be immersed for the remission of sins. Once you've done that, live faithfully till death. If, however, today you recognize that you need to come back to your first love, maybe you've forgotten that there's an immortal spirit. You've forgotten that you are not fundamentally simply what you see. Make sure that spirit's ready to meet its God in judgment. If we could assist you today by rededicating, aiding you to rededicate your life, we'd be honored to help you. If either of those things is a need of your life today, will you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?